That is the legendary Tupac featuring Roger Troutman and Dr. Dre for my man, my brother from SoCal, the UCLA grad, Dr. Will Wu. What's up, brother? That's a nice winter song, isn't it, DJ? It is, man. It is. Good it song makes, to play in the winter. It, it is. It, feel, it makes me feel very, very wintry, although I could kind of imagine driving through Compton, rolling in my 6'4", with tall, tall royal palms on either side of the street. <laughs> Feeling it, man. Yeah, give it up for SoCal. You know what's really well man. done with that song was uh, LeBron's first year with the Lakers, uh, Beats by Dre did a commercial with LeBron with that song and he's in there just highlighting bits and pieces of LA and showing LeBron come into Staples. That was good. The former nine, 9% owner of beats by Dr. Dre, that guy. Yeah. That yeah. was good. Uh, but let's, uh, let's not forget that in the, in the blue corner, uh, no, I'm sorry. In the red corner. Cause Will seems to be in the blue corner based on the background is my man, the heavy metal bass player, the sociology major, and the man who is about to start nursing school this week. Next week. Next week, Mr. Nick Cazona. How are you, my, my good friend, sir? I am good. I am good. Are you How well? Are you guys doing well? Dude, I'm all right. I'm out here in Nuevo Mexico. Ooh. Uh, enchiladas. 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 But I had Korean food tonight. And the oh. one the one thing I said, because it's takeout only, the restaurants are not taking people in, is I said, sir, um, is banchan included? <laughs> 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 Which is like the kimchi and all the little salads that, yeah, that yeah, come along the with the part, banchan. Man. So I had yeah, a beautiful bimibop tonight. And, uh, oh, did I, you I get feel stone pot? You get no, no but you you can't though because it, it's takeout. It's so you have to get the regular bimmy bop. Oh, because got it's it, takeout. Got it, got it. Oh. But it was good, man. It's very, very good. Very Dude, fresh. Some Korean places they're like just known for the the side dishes. And the side yeah. dishes are ridiculously good. Yeah, uh, Dave Chang. I don't know if you guys saw uh, that episode where Dave Chang goes to Koreatown with like a Korean actor and a Korean comedian. In L.A.? Oh, my God. Yes. Yes. In L.A.? Yes. And, and okay, that comedian guy was embarrassing Dave, like, so bad, man. Like, he wanted, <laughs> he wanted to, like, get up and leave because that guy was so funny, man. Actually, I think the comedian guy may have been trying. No, actually, I think they were both Korean. But then what you see is he and Dave go to, like, Shanghai after that. And they go eating there, and he was just acting like an asshole in Shanghai. And he's like, "Well, I don't. Nobody knows me here. Like, I don't care." So <laughs> it's just so funny. <laughs> he's a funny guy. Oh man! So yeah, watch that episode of Ugly Delicious, man. It's just um, Dave Chang is just like gold, man. It's, it, you know, particularly I think it's better though. I don't know. You guys can correct me when Dave is driving the bus. Uh, and he's kind of like in control of what's going on, it like with his boys. But when the comedian took over, Dave was kind of like on defense. It seemed like the whole time. So <laughs> it's good to see people in different roles. Yeah, <laughs> Dave's used to driving the bus. So yeah, it's good. To, it's interesting to see him not in, be in charge. Yeah, granted, he was a, he was a guest on that other show, that Chef Show, Top Chef. 
No, it's called the Chef Show or something. It has uh the guy. That oh no, that's Roy Choi. Chef. That's not. Yeah. Yeah. That's and not Roy Choi is the other guy, and then like Dave Chang was in a couple episodes. And oh, do they have Dave Chang in one of those? They do. Yeah. They they right. they, they had an episode where they cook Korean food, and Dave Chang comes in. Oh, that's like, oh, hey, guys, and they're Very like cool. cooking like their childhood dishes and kind of reinventing them. The childhood. Oh, well, Dave Chang. A side note: Dave Chang uh, made a childhood dish that he hated but then he wanted to reinvent it and kind of make it more palatable to him now like he's like if i could make this now as a uh, child like you know so he makes this yeah so it's pretty cool it's oh, interesting. nice it's interesting how those guys like think like they they know the concept of a dish but then they know what makes the dish but then they could kind of tweak ingredients and change yeah. out things to make them more make it a little bit more contemporary temporary or like in this case more sort of um tasty to the masses oh yeah yeah tasty to the masses because he's like this dish he's like i'm making it right now he's like if i made it the traditional way he's like it, it it would not look appetizing at all it'd be like this mushy like <laughs> it's some seaweed soup thing and it was more like elegant looking dude the chef show there's got a lot of good things on that show i think i talked about how talented john favreau is but one of my favorite things from that show is just watching them just kill food after they're done eating it or after they're done oh oh yeah hey, john probably okay. put, put it down man He's hey hold on before <laughs> hey, hey can you guys hear me yeah, yeah. okay before well, first of all welcome back to life mma in the nba i'm totally cool with continuing the food talk and i just want to ask you guys a question based on something that uh that uh anecdote that nick just told so will we'll start with you is there a dish that you know of that is uh, traditional that you grew up with that you think that recipe could not be improved because of what Dave said that you can tweak some of these recipes. So it, do you think it, there exists a recipe that is just impossible to improve? You know, I grew up eating Chinese food for the majority of time and a little bit of Mexican food. And if you look at those two cuisines, what we have around us today in terms of the authentic style, I'm not talking like Panda Express or Taco Bell or things like that. Uh, I don't, I don't see it change. It hasn't changed very much from when I was younger to what I am now. People have got, have had different takes on it. Um, but people are still eating. We're still eating it today. Yeah. I mean, I think what I was asking like is, because maybe, I don't know, maybe you didn't do or don't know a Chinese chef. But what I'm asking you is, do you have a favorite food, a favorite dish that's mm. tra a traditional Chinese dish that you would say to the world, this recipe cannot be improved? Like cannot be improved? Yes, like Coca Van if you're French or something. Like, But is there a Chinese equivalent of something? Yeah, that so it's hard for me because, you know, my, my daughter will ask me, like, what's your favorite? What's your favorite? Like, mm -hmm. Kind of thing. And with food, it's always like she, I can never give a favorite because I'm such a fat boy that I love all kinds, like all the single, every single dish. But I would say, man, that's a that's a tough question. Just it is like right off the top. I would say probably if you look at the way they. Yeah, I don't know. I can't. I, I, I would. One. I was I mean, hoping, if I, I just was, take one example, like if I just take one example, 
Um, and I think a lot of people, regardless of whether they're super into Chinese or not, have had Peking duck before. Oh, that's what that's Dave Chang went with yeah. that guy to a Peking duck, Peking duck restaurant. Yeah, and the way that they make Peking duck, not only the duck itself, but if you go to some places uh, that are not as fancy, they're it's, little it's quite a process to make. Places, yeah, you get the Peking duck. But then they also give you rice and they put this ridiculously good sauce on the rice. And then you have your Peking duck on top of it. And you get like two pieces of, of green vegetable. It's probably like a Chinese broccoli or something like that. Um, I'm already that getting meal, excited. That meal right there, this kind of epitomizes what I like as food. It's that meal right there is, they were probably eating it for how many years? and it hasn't changed and it's not fancy it's super simplistic but the taste is just out of the world right i'm not like i'm not the type of foodie who really likes to likes fine dining really right That's me too super not my thing although i'll do it i'll do it and i rarely do it and i do enjoy it but that's that's not my wheelhouse kind of thing i like it when um it's super simple it's there has some there's some tradition to it and it doesn't really change much because it doesn't need to change kind of like your question but i would think that that's it because i can go i could take you to a hole in the wall place dj and we'll pay like for a plate dude you're for a plate we'll pay like depending on what city that we're in if we're in irvine we're gonna probably pay like 15 dollars. <laughs> but if we're in like the san gabriel valley we'll probably pay like 10 or 11 dollars and we'll sit down outside in the parking lot or whatever with a styrofoam container and we'll eat rice, peking duck with this sauce and with some green vegetables. And we'll just be like, dude. Okay. When I come to Irvine, we got to do that. But, uh, but before I, and by the way, I was hoping you were going to characterize my question as a good question as opposed to a tough question. Anyway, <laughs> Nick, <laughs> thank you, Will, for the almost compliment. Nick. I'll ask you that same question here on Life MMA and the NBA as Kyrie Irving torches uh, 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 the L.A. Clippers. Um, Nick, is there a dish that you remember, particularly when your uh, your palate was a bit more expanded out, or even now that you said, I've tasted that and I don't think that dish could get any better, this traditional dish, whether it be Japanese or not? Uh, I mean, it's it's tough um i've had quite a bit of a variety of food and everything and like to for will for will's answer and everything like that i mean you know uh eating mexican and uh chinese food growing up and everything i think a lot of some of the a lot of these recipes within those sort of uh areas have a lot of variance in them but it's the same recipe so it's hard to say if like that recipe is or like it's not no it's not a universal recipe for some of these dishes like for a mole sauce like everyone makes their mole sauce a little different you know chinese cuisine might be more uh, universal but i think there's probably some variances in different regions and how they, they how they cook certain dishes as well so it's hard to say what this what the recipe is that is you know quintessential that cannot be changed but i think overall yeah you could maybe say that it can stay the same without veering off and it sort of not being if it veers off too much then it might not be that same dish or whatever but i love the fact that people like to fuse things and 
change things and everything like that. And I grew up with a lot of various sort of foods and everything. So I don't know. I mean, like for traditional Japanese food, I think traditional Japanese food tends to stay in that tradition. And I think yeah. overall, it, it should it should stay that way. Like a, like a, a shoyu ramen should, you know, I don't think you can make a shoyu ramen any, any better than it actually is. You know, I think there's variances on a good recipe compared to an average recipe. Like when I lived in California, there were ramen shots around every corner, right? And most of them were, were okay, pretty good, right? But the ones that were really good were hard to find. Like if only, I've only ate like at two or three that were like, okay, they were like a cut above like the rest of them that you would get either in LA or SoCal, wherever you're at, in so Southern California or whatever. So, so for something like that, yeah, yeah. So, but then again, so, so I think cuisine. I, I could tell Chef Morimoto just quit trying to evolve this cuisine and just close up Nobu and it's over. Right now. Close the door. I, I heard it. I, I, I've known a couple of guys. <laughs> Will's laughing because he knows he. <laughs> okay. They didn't think it was I, all I, that I, awesome. I, I, honestly, I've worked with a, a handful of chefs that worked at Nobu. I've never ate there, but from what they've told me, I don't know. I think it's. I think I think it's a I think it's a a life cycle issue where you know like restaurants will go they'll kind of hit an apex and I'm sure Wolfgang Puck's places were like that and you know that were famous in L.A. like Spago I'm sure and Spago's kind of like you know had a resurgence but I I think that's fairly normal so uh, but as far as fine dining and everything sorry to cut you off but fine dining I think I think there's a time and place for that as well. I like fine dining. I mean, being me being vegan, the fine dining isn't really a whole lot of options for that. But when I ate everything, man, I I, I would eat anywhere that would be good food. If there's a tablecloth, I don't. Want, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not. I think in a lot there. of the innovation. Like, I'm not in there if there's a tablecloth. Yeah, I'm. I'm not yeah, into yeah. It. But I think um, a lot of the innovation and the creativity is is pushed in the fine dining scene. So I think there's a, I, a good place for it. I actually, I actually have an example. Um, to keep on the same line, I actually have an example of a place where a traditional recipe, and basically, real quickly. So this is ten years ago, maybe eleven. Katiani and I went to uh, Miami when we went to Little Havana, and I had asked uh, the cab driver where can I get a great Cuban sandwich, and he said La Careta, uh, the wagon wheel. So I said, okay. So uh, after we got back to the hotel, got situated, went to La Careta, and I ordered, it was in the afternoon, I ordered the classic Cuban sandwich. And this thing came out, and it was beautiful. I mean, (laughs) I have tried to make Cuban sandwiches, and you think, oh, it's ham, it's roast pork, it's Swiss, it's a mustard, it's Cuban bread and pickles. I should be able to do this. Like, and then it's pressed down in a panini machine. I, I should be able to make this at home, right? It doesn't taste the same. I swear to you, I tried, okay? Um, so Katiani goes and orders a Cuban sandwich that was like a, they called it the Mexicana or something like that, okay? La Mexicana. So basically, it was the same Cuban sandwich I had. But it had a layer of Mexican chorizo in it. Oh, and, yeah. so, and so, okay, that was a little, you know, had a little kick. So yeah. I ate my sandwich and said, this is pretty, this is amazing. This is the best Cuban sandwich I've ever had. 
And then I took a bite into hers and said, okay, that's like outrageous. That's just like went over the top. So I, I think that's kind of the example of, of what I was talking about. And I thought of it as you were talking. So but I, I think DJ in that regard, I love that you bring up that example because let's say the three of us are going there for the first time and we're ordering a sandwich. We ha- you have to get the baseline staple non-evolved version. No, yeah, yeah. You have to do that. And then you being able to share with Katiana, I think that's awesome because then that then you get a variation of that. But you have to have that baseline one, which you I thought did. Was, was was outstanding. And I could see like who doesn't like Teresa? I mean, Teresa's like freaking awesome, right? Um, but I think that's that's I'm glad that you had that baseline experience at first, and then you had the variation. One of the things that I like to see that's already done culturally, it's not something that's infused, like with a specific restaurant or specific chef, is if you've ever eaten uh, locally in Hawaii. Hawaii is awesome because it takes, it has its island culture, and then it's been populated by all these different Asian cultures. And in terms of the food, it just takes the best or the favorites of each Asian culture combined with the island culture. And then you get like that island food. But it's it's crazy because I'll go there and man, it's like a part of me is like I'm in a new place. But a part of me is like I haven't left my childhood eating Chinese food because I can have I can have roast duck. I can have Peking duck. I can have dumplings. Um, you know, I can have Chinese dim sum dishes while I'm having some Korean dishes with some, you know, some island dishes. And they, for a while, they've done that. It's kind of a, what we think of Hawaiian food here, not in the fast food restaurants, is way different. Like, it's undersold. Like, you go there, you have Hawaiian food. It's just an amalgamation of all, all this different stuff. And that, uh, that reminds me of another, let me see if I can pull this up, pull this guy's name up real. Oh, okay, I remember his name now. So uh, one of your colleagues in science, his name is Thor Heyerdahl, and there's a movie about his life that's on Netflix, and there's also a YouTube documentary that I would recommend more highly than even seeing a movie because it was filmed. But Thor Heyerdahl postulated that natives of native Indians of Peru sailed across the Pacific and landed in Poly- French, where French Polynesia is. And they said, because when the Spanish uh, conquistadors uh, conquered that area, they found those boats and they made very detailed drawings of those boats. So Thor Heyerdahl, and I'll try to find this, he, he uh, reconstructed one of those boats from balsa wood. Con- Let me see this, Contiki. And I'm gonna I'm gonna send this to you real quick. Um, and um, this will come up uh, actually. This will come up on our chat. There you go. Um, this is just sort of the Google, but there is a YouTube because he had a, he had brought gathered together a group of guys. And they brought a filmmaker aboard and filmed the entire voyage. They did it in 112 days, 106 days. They said, okay, you've – so they, they cut the balsa wood out of the forest in a country that's just above uh, Chile, I think. I, I'm trying to 
I may be confusing this because I saw it like six months ago. They floated them down the river and they waited, floating them down the freshwater river, let the sap come out to protect the uh, wood. And then they lashed them together with hemp rope and made it to spec the way that the Peruvian Indians did or the Chilean Indians. Forgive me that I can't remember which country. And they sailed it across and, and uh, they said, you're going to be sunk within two weeks. You guys are going to cap, capsize on the ocean, open ocean, and you're going to, you're all going to die. And they said, uh, he had never sailed. He didn't even know how to swim. And he said, no, we're going to do this. And him and a bunch of Norwegian Viking type dudes, one was an engineer. In fact, the engineer had brought, at least in the movie, he brought along cable and he said, Tor, he goes, the, the raft seems loose. It's making a lot of creaking noise. Let me just tighten it with this cable. And he said, let me see the cable. And he gives him the cable. He pitches the cable in the water. He goes, see, now there's no cable. He goes, the Indians wow, did. Ballsy. He said the Indians did it with hemp rope. And the reason he did that, if you would have put that cable, it would have cut right through the balsa wood. Because oh, the whole God. thing was moving and flexing. No oh, I gotta watch that. I'm gonna watch that. Contiki, it was absolutely fascinating when they made it to French Polynesia. Um, the surf was breaking. Okay, so that's bad. They didn't want that. They wanted it on a flat lake kind of day where they could float right into shore and get off. Well, that wasn't gonna happen. So as they got closer and closer, they kind of um, it went. The raft went over a wave and the. Their little hut that they built that they lived in collapsed. But the raft itself, the structure of the raft stayed together. They rescued the raft itself and the Polynesians helped them, you know, and fed them and all that stuff. And it's sitting in a museum in Norway today. That's pretty That's so, really cool. Yeah, they just reconstructed the, uh, the bunkhouse where they all slept, which was all made from thatched palm and all that. All natural materials. Oh, there was no, nothing out. synthetic. Yeah. Let me check that out. Absolutely fascinating. Then, uh, to just to thicken the plot, his grand. So they had all they had aboard was a one of those telegraph radios. Uh, I think they had an HF and they had a telegraph. So if they couldn't get voice, they could just you know do, do you know do do Morse code. His grandson, Thor's grandson, made the trip again. He built a bigger version of the same raft and he did it in um, I don't know like. 12 less days or something like that. Great. So anyway. The new one improved. New one, yeah, it's just he didn't get off course. If you watch their course line, they kind of wanted to go direct, you know, like a straight line from the coast of, uh, let me see if I'm right when I say Chile. Um, they went direct. They wanted to go directly straight line right to French Polynesia. And what ended up happening is they went north figure out that they were going north and then they corrected course came back south and got on course and so that they lost some days in doing that so uh hey. but yes hey yeah. is it is it halloween today no why i'm not dressed up like something nick do you see what dj's wearing who is he dressed as is I'm he wearing a rash guard Oh, no, God. underneath hair here, skin, yeah. Fair skinned Caucasian guy, bald, <laughs> fair skinned Caucasian guy wearing a rash guard. Danaher? <laughs> oh my God, like John Donaher. 
You are so cold, Will. Oh my gosh. You you could you couldn't really be more cold. You really couldn't be. It's it's crazy because the week before you're dressed up like Woodstock. The week before, yeah, I think you were dressed as oh the like Le, something LeBron Jamesy. Yeah, he's mixing You never it up. know. You really never know what I'm gonna wear. Um, well, I can't imagine what your closet looks like, DJ. Yeah, French Polynesia. It was uh, 3,000 uh, 3, miles these guys went, which is insane. I'm going to watch anyway. it. Yeah. I'm going right. to watch it. What okay. do we have on tap for today, DJ? All right, Nick. No, Nick Cazono is driving the bus. I'm, oh. get, I'm getting out of the seat, nice. and I'm going to go in the first row. I'm putting Nick in the driver's seat. Nice. What's up, baby? Oh, Let's go, we, man. We got, we got a decent card this MMA. weekend. An MMA decent card. What's we got up? some some uh, heavyweight action, some veteran heavyweights going at it to maybe crack the top five, maybe be some title contenders in the main event with Alistair Overeem fighting uh, Volkov. What's his first name? I forgot his first name. Volkov. Uh, Alexander Volkov. Al- Alexander Volkov. So yep. I think that's a good one. And then the co-main event, I think, is what people are kind of – salivating about and everything is uh frankie edgar versus Corey sanhagen i can yeah. tell you someone who's not excited about that you're not excited about that fight no i don't like i don't like the elderly fighters fighting these young lions i don't so no i, I really he, don't like he, this he beat pedro munoz who's who's a top 10 tops i think he might have been eight or i don't know he he's definitely pedro munoz is a good fighter I mean, he, he's a pedro, he's a damn good fighter Knocked out yeah. Cody Nolove Garbrandt, so and he, he he's he's a, a well tested fighter. So I mean, Edgar Cody no, him. oh Cody no, Garbrandt. the other guy did the other Corey knocked out. No, 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 Cody Garbrandt got knocked out by Pedro Munoz. Okay, got it. All right, I'm following you Cody now. Cody was okay. doing the whole let's brawl. I got a bang bro type style. Bang bro, <laughs> you know, gonna do it, man. It's like Garbrandt, like his 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 performance against Dominic. Cruz was like, just, you know, Matrix like, just oh man, no one could beat this guy. And then, then you see him lose to Pedro Munoz, and you're like, what happened? You just you're just gonna bite down and just start throwing and just get knocked out. So whatever, that's that's, you know, we all know about that. Yeah, but yeah. I don't know. I, so I mean, Edgar beat Munoz, who's a tough fighter. So I mean, I don't think he's over the hill. I don't think. Um, and it, and it's his second fight in 135. He might have some life in that division. I mean, this is probably the the natural weight division that he should have been fighting at since the beginning. Yeah. Everything. I know his coach, Mark Henry, called into Luke Thomas's uh, Serious XM show back when uh, Edgar was a, a freaking lightweight. And he, he told Luke, Luke Thomas that, you know, Edgar could cut down at 135 right now if he really wanted to. And this was years ago. When yeah. He was fighting that so long I remember time. that. Yep. So... I don't know. It could breathe a couple. He might have a couple good good run, or he might have a good run left in him, pushing the age of forty potentially. So, I don't think he's a Diego Sanchez or even a Damian Maya. Not to say Damian Maya is over the hill, but even a feeding a Damian Maya to like a, a to a Kamshaf or whatever that guy. I don't think it's in that vein. But I mean, yeah, San Hagen's favored, but you know, Edgar San Hagen doesn't have good takedown defense. So it could feed into Edgar, maybe. That's true. That's true. But that's true. I would say, I don't know. I would say, 
don't know. I think it's interesting. Yeah. Same okay, you, you've talked me into it, Nick. I hope I hope, <laughs> I hope you're happy. You've talked me into being interested in this fight. Um, Overeem and Volkov. You didn't really give your thoughts on that particular fight. I mean, Overeem, you know, he's kind of reinvented himself. Not really reinvented himself, but he's using all the tools that he has at his disposal in order to win fights yes, now, which we yes. all... You Will, know, you should be, tell Will. He should be very proud of Overeem because he was kickboxing. He was losing in the stupidest ways, and he's bringing a full... He was. He was losing. Yeah. This guy was a K1 Grand Prix champion losing the guys who've never had a kickboxing match in their life. Uh, and, you know, losing to MMA strikers that were, like, brand new to the sport. You know, like Travis yeah. Brown. Now he's like evolved his game. He's really using all. He'll wrestle you. He will take you down. He's got his top game. Woo! Don't get I on the bottom, Alex. And if he gets rocked, he'll he'll go for he'll go for a takedown and take a guy down and and kind of ground him out and and you know lose a little well, bit of their pop. And another interesting thing, I don't know if you've noticed this either, Will. He used to fade. Sometimes when he'd get hit, he'd get that look on his face. He'd fade back, and he'd really just kind of come. Now he's really actively circling. He starts moving, and he really gives himself a chance to recover before getting back into the fight. Before, a lot of guys would stun over him, and he'd be done after that. He, would, he was easy to finish at one point. Now he's like got his whole brain involved in his game. I attribute it all to Wim Hof. I don't know about you guys, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing what happens when you become an MMA fighter. All right? <laughs> it's amazing. Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness, that's cold, man. So, um so I mean, you're that's just not that's just not pointed at Alistair Overeem by any means. No, it's that's like minor the last five cards we watched so <laughs> yeah Bono, for you will though i know you know when you watch ufc's you're, you know you're analyzing a lot of their movements and everything like that do you see any sort of for regarding heavyweight bouts do you see any sort of movements that are distinguished within the heavyweight division compared to the other divisions obviously speed would be a factor but do we see any sort of the the primary thing that i see is there's a severe drop in skill level in the heavyweight divisions. Yeah. Severe. Yeah. Um, it's almost to the point where they're always trying to hit home runs. Um, yeah, that's what, that's what I mainly see. And I don't really, a heavyweight mat or heavyweight bout or heavyweight fight doesn't, doesn't really do it for me unless it's a, a hyped kind of big name one. But if you yeah. just, Agreed. The other ones, if I watch the other one, you're just you're waiting for a car accident to happen. You're yeah, not, you're not looking for anything other than that, and they most of the time they're not giving you anything more than that. What do you but, What do you expect that John Jones, a heavyweight, to do? You know, ah, it's funny you say ah. that. Funny you say that. <laughs> <laughs> I just asked oh. DJ and I were. <laughs> Doing a little show prep, and I asked DJ, I was like, "What the heck is going on with John Jones? Like, where is he? Did he? Uh, did I miss something? Did he do something?" I mean, he, stupid he's bulking up, man. He's, he's picks of his upper back. It's all jacked. So he's, he's getting all big for a heavyweight. Getting all big for a heavyweight. Yeah. Well, this is what DJ. This is what DJ postulated that he 
he was gonna he wanted to step up not because it was a challenge to step up but he was avoiding a challenge in izzy what do you think of that nick he could i mean i mean the hit hit the way he approaches fights and which is i think aligned with the way jackson winklejohn approaches fights is they're very methodical so if they feel like you know john jones is maybe at a dis even at a disadvantage in the stand-up or whatever just overall you know maybe a heavyweight move would be better i mean does he does john jones really have anything else to prove i mean yeah sure izzy and him were talking trash to each other but ultimately john jones i mean if he goes up to heavyweight you know destroys everyone there and no one's going to really care as much about an izzy match unless izzy goes up there and then if izzy goes up to heavyweight you know, John Jones would most likely be at a a better advantage. No, with to... without question. Yeah. I mean, if I can, if I can jump in here. Oh, get it, get on in there. Um, <laughs> I, you know, if you have a guy, and this is going to actually, I'm going to step into Will's territory, and I'm going to step in the cage, and then when Will steps in, I'm going to step out. But <laughs> he is at a significant athletic advantage with the heavyweights and they probably think at this time as well as Izzy is looking right now, especially the way he was firing those leg kicks, they're probably convinced him there's no reason to go fight a younger, more athletic guy and have you cut weight again when you could go up and you're going to out-athlete every single guy in the weight class. Well, not only uh, – he's not only – he does not only possess more physical gifts than the rest of the guys that light or at heavyweight, but he's also way more skilled than those guys are and can fight multi much better than they are. He's just got to overcome the, the discrepancy of the size or the weight and the associated power that's coming with it. So if he can do those, then he's just going to clean up. Like, that's kind of boring. So if he fights Miocic, then who does he fight next in that weight division? Um, let's see. Um, I don't Got think him. he's going to get Hardy. He'll Francis. get. Yeah, Francis is up there. He knows he could take him down. And what was the guy that I was talking about? Espino. What the hell was his name? Juan but Espino. I, but either way, are those are those fights? Do they do they move the needle for for either of you? Well, yeah, only the rest. Oh, only, go ahead, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Nick. I, I, you know who I'm going to say. Go ahead. I don't. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like, say, I mean, to me, the wrestler guy. I would be interested to see him fight the wrestler guy, but because he's been in, inactive, he is oh, not setting. Blades? No, well, that would be another good one. But you don't hear I'm John Jones talk about, that, about that him. Olympian. Espino. He was Olympian, right? Yeah. I'll look. I'll look his name up while while you. He's kind of an unknown, but yeah. I mean, he would. Yeah, yeah, he would he would probably post some threats and everything. Oh yeah, nobody's gonna like want. It, they do yeah, not want John fight, to so. fight a guy that could take him down. They they don't want that. Yeah, but an encounter matchup would be fun. You know, it's like can it, it John Jones could maybe steep a and Engano would just take him down and just take him down and and potentially land a get a choke or just cut him up with some elbows and everything like that and if he's got the gas to probably do that over and over again which he probably would he could do that or you know he could get clipped by an Engano haymaker and that puts on anybody so 
that's an interesting fight to see potentially. But yeah, I mean, even uh, this this main event this weekend, people were kind of talking about the winner of uh, Volkov and Overeem could potentially be a, a John Jones sort of welcoming bout when he goes up to heavyweight. So either Al- Overeem or Volkov. Would be I think a- either is good for uh, John Jones. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you ha- again, uh, to read, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to read the tea leaves here. If Oh, yeah, and that guy I'm talking about, Espina, he's not even in the top 15 right now. He hasn't fought in quite a while. He's from Spain. But anyway, um, getting back to what you were saying, um, uh, now I lost my train of thought. Was I was talking about John. Um, who were we talking about? John fighting who? Oh, the winner. No, we were- the winner of. They're very confident. Here's what I meant to say. They're quite confident then that they could beat Overeem because they've seen hundred over a hundred rounds of sparring, over a hundred rounds of sparring between Overeem and John. So they know how that's going to go, um, and I, I don't think that would. I don't think that would bode well for Overeem unless he pays really good attention to that one thing that we talked about that um, uh, Tiago Santos was able to execute quite well until he hurt his knee. That's right. If he kicks John the legs, if he goes back to his roots as a Dutch kickboxer, some of the best kick leg kicks on planet Earth are by them as a group along with the ties. If if he went to those kicks, there's no there's nothing John could do about that. He would he would literally only have to land a few, but he has to know that he has to know going in just like Dustin did. I just mm. I just I just don't know. But do you see what I'm saying though? How that could become yeah. a competitive fight. That could and what he would have to do to negate that is either be really offensive and just like kind of come forward on Overeem and not have him set up those kicks or go for a takedown. But if you can't do those things, and I'm curious to see John Jones in a heavyweight, does he revert back to what what he was? When sure. He first came back to or first started to fight in the UFC where he was sure. kind of wild and letting it go. Is he going to fight like that in a heavyweight, or is he going to be more? kind of on the ways of what he's currently fighting at, kind of more calculated, more defensively savvy, picking his shots, you know, pacing himself and everything. I don't know. I would say he would probably be a little more conservative just based on the, maybe the power, you know, of, of some of these heavyweights and not trying to, you know, he's got a great chin at 205, and I'm sure his chin will be pretty decent at heavyweight, but why test that out at heavyweight when you're going to go kind of crazy with the offense? But... I don't know. Be well, well, what I'm thinking is that if you're going to attack John Jones, you have to have a – it's weird because we have ad nauseum talked about how you have to be prepared to execute a full game plan when you're in an MMA fight. We've talked about guys that don't kick, that just box, guys that can't stop a takedown, that have no wrestling. We've talked about – uh, Justin Gaethje that had absolutely zero jiu-jitsu background he looks like when he fought Khabib, right? So we've said that. However, I'm going to flip the script now and you guys are going to get to push back on me. So get those, get those palms ready. Is 
to me, I think you have to have a singular thing that you can do because if you're going to go and say, I'm just going to engage in an MMA contest with John, I think you're screwed. He's going to be better in all those areas. Uh, yeah. That's what you're saying. Yeah, uh, I agree. Will? Look at John Jones, and I just – I look at him and go, wow, it's hard to beat that guy. It's hard to game plan for that guy. Other guys, it's just so much easier, but he is – he, we talk about Khabib being really good at what he does, but John Jones is so Khabib is a little bit more one track mind, but he's really good at it. No one can stop it. I look at John Jones being the decathlete that could do everything, not the best, but do everything really well. Better than so, you. <laughs> yeah. Better. Yeah. Better than the, better than the guy that's in the cage with him. And so if I have a fighter and I'm trying to game plan and I'm thinking, okay, what do we want to do? Do we want to wrestle? Do we want to clinch? We definitely don't want to stand up and strike. Um, it's still hard because we might want to stand up and strike if, but what kind of strikes have we seen John absorb and almost never even be phased? Yeah. I mean, what strikes are those? The, oh, yeah, out of the chin. Those, those head strikes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, now, you look at... Yeah. And I what mean, areas it, have we seen him struggle? When he was kicked in the legs by one guy that did that to him. We haven't yeah. seen anyone out hold him down wrestling. We haven't seen anybody in the clinch that's as good as he is. So yeah, you now, don't... you know... The, the, the chin is his strength, but I, I'm not as confident about his chin when he moves up in weight division. True. And we've seen the effect of Connor, and not him taking punches per se, but him giving punches when he moves up, all of a sudden the power is seems to be a little bit less. Um, and I think a lot of what was going on with Connor, you know, a big component of that is going up in weight division. So if you look at John Jones and I say, oh, is it going to be a cake or, or is it going to be a walk in the park? I go, oh, you still have that thing called jumping up a division and additional power and you know, velocity and force that's coming with punches from the other guys. Um, so maybe he can manage it in the, in what is his, what was his light, in his light heavyweight division. Mm-hmm. Um, but who knows? It's a mystery on whether he can take those punches in the heavyweight division. But I'm just saying he sparred with Travis Brown. He sparred with Andre. He sparred yeah. with Alistair. I mean, I'm not saying like those guys went full force on him, but I'm just saying he knows what he's getting in there with. He knows what his strength is. If it was me, if I was if Nick, if I was if I was Alistair's coach, I'd be like, take your ass to Thailand and spend like six weeks working on just working on calf kicks, leg kicks, elbows, because it's like when you're playing checkers, he's playing chess. When you're throwing punches at his face, he's throwing elbows at you. Mm. He's kicking you in the knee. Things like that. And would, so, and, and you would hope that coaches have paid attention to the recent fights that have demonstrated how effective I, I hope. the leg kicks are. You would hope, right? Yeah. That's a, one of the things that I see from a skill development progression standpoint about martial arts in general. It's very traditional in nature and it's very stubborn um and so 
maybe maybe MMA is evolving where it's becoming a little bit more adaptable like other sports, adaptable on the fly rather than take years and years and years, right? Because you just, Oh, it's definitely adaptable on the fly. Right. You look at sure. jiu-jitsu and jiu-jitsu is adaptable on the fly too. I don't know about that because leg leg entanglements and submissions are relatively brand new. Yeah, but look at look at all right, say for example, so and so wins, you know, world title in IBJJF, right? And they do a technique that no one really paid really much attention to. Yeah. Everyone's gonna be playing it. Like, uh, what's his face? Uh I forgot who somebody was playing collar and sleeve with a leg on the bicep. Mm. I forgot. It was he was like uh he was an up and comer like some people knew he was good but most people were like who is this guy and he, he submitted like Leandro Lowe with it or something or beat Leandro Lowe playing that style of open guard and all of a sudden oh uh, you're t- are you talking about Nicholas Marigali Nicholas Marigali yeah. yeah and I don't know what I think it was something in along lines of that it was like some sort of like collar and sleeve or mm. foot on bicep type type variation so people started playing that and obviously you know you see the meows and you see the, the mendez brothers playing barambolo and all the little guys are playing barambolo you see keenan cornelius playing um oh what was this thing what, what, what was he known for uh his oh the uh, um little, yeah uh, is it worm guard is worm that what you yeah. see him play worm guard and people are like Ooh, okay so people play worm guard for a little bit and then they start to counter that so it's always evolving it's never like this like X guard is the best. The they tornado the guard. The, the tornado guard's the best. You know, like people <laughs> people play it, but then they go, all right, then they have success with it. But then somebody, you know, say they just played it for, or they just perfected it for a year, and then boom, they start just killing everyone in these in, in these competitions within, and and all of a sudden the the narrative shifts. So I think jujitsu the narrative is always going to shift based on who's winning. So yeah, really I, I would hope that the MMA world can adapt, adjust, modify, copy, whatever it may be, because you have a lot of that in other sports that explain explain a lot of successes in other sports, right? So football, they go to uh, more of a passing, um, attacking, horizontal attacks, passing attacks. In baseball, yeah. you have um, how they're adjusting to home runs and how they're how they really are concerned with launch angle. Um, they're always trying to find out what's the next best thing and stay ahead of the other. Whereas, I don't know, can we say that about MMA? I think there's a natural evolution of MMA with just better athletes. You have fighters with better physical traits. But if you look at the what we've seen from a technical standpoint, I, yeah, I would say it's evolved, but is it evolved as much as other sports have because of looking fight to fight year to year what's working what's not working well if i can just interrupt here for just a second um jiu-jitsu we're not gonna we're not gonna say no to john danaher's (laughs) (laughs) uh jiu-jitsu was was monolithic though one of the differences between these other sports and, and jiu-jitsu is jiu-jitsu is very monolithic. The Gracies kind of set the table for what we're going to do. And I kind of think that's in the background what you were alluding to, Will, is they didn't play a lot of leg locks. 
So therefore, a lot of people didn't play leg locks. The famous story is that Eric Paulson went and uh, was a Hicks and Gracie student. And he went and he trained, did some catch wrestling. And he came back and he said, Hicks, and let me show you that the, man, I learned some foot locks and stuff that I got. And um, so he gets down on the floor and says, give me your leg. He did this. And, and he's like, Hicks, and said, oh, that's a good stretch. That's a good stretch. That feels good. So, you know, they, I don't think they were ready to embrace that back in the uh, the early 90s uh, when uh, Eric Paulson before Josh Barnett became his, his student. So, you know. Well, it was frowned upon. It was frowned upon. And I look at the post-fight of Poirier and McGregor and they're interviewing McGregor. And it was almost like in the McGregor interview, he said when he was talking about his face not being touched in the way he was referring to the leg kicks, he almost was like, there were just leg kicks in it kind of thing, rather than if he would have got punched in the face initially and knocked out, it would like, it was like he would have respected it or he would, could have, he could have accepted it much, much more, but he was like, Oh, it's, you know, just leg kicks. And you can kind of see him thinking and, you can kind of see him thinking as he's talking and coming to the realization that those leg kicks just jack me up because he didn't touch me in the face. It's almost like a, he kind of reversed his perception of what it was. Um, but That's... man, I don't know how you can ignore that as a fight strategy because everybody's kicking. How you can um, how you can ignore that? We should see it quite frequently. It's ironic. Because um, when I started covering MMA is when I was right here in this very city I'm in now, Clovis, New Mexico. Enchiladas. And enchilada. And um, I used to go, I, I remember, I don't want to say where and who because I don't want to allude to a specific person. However, if that person were to listen to this podcast, they would know who I'm talking about. Um, but uh, wrestling is not, was not very big around here. And I remember that fighter would, on a couple of occasions, make fun of wrestlers because that fighter wanted to stand and bang. He had a ground game. He had some ground game, you know, as far as jiu-jitsu is concerned, but had no wrestling game at all. And I said, dude, if, if that dude's beating you wrestling, you should be saying, hey, fucking good job. I need to learn how to do that. You don't say, uh, make fun of, ah, he's just a wrestler. It was directly analogous to what Connor was doing. It doesn't matter how you lose in MMA. I don't want to lose by anything. Yeah. I want to I find out what I'm not good at and train that. There's That's like a, what you need to do. There's like a stubbornness associated with martial arts. Maybe it's the traditional component with martial arts where it's more philosophically based rather than it is scientifically based. And if it's more philosophically based, you're less, you're less willing to change. Where it's, if it's science, it doesn't really matter what I did in the past. It's what's going to be effective. What do we know now? Um, so maybe that's, maybe that's it. Because if I look at a fighter and he's saying that to me, like, I'm not going to wrestle. That wrestling stuff is, you know, whatever. He thinks of it. And oh, he's just a wrestler, it. man. <laughs> yeah, that was nothing. I'm looking. At, I'm looking at the athlete. I'm going. Are you a professional athlete? Right. Because 
professional athletes don't look at it that way. And this athlete wasn't professional at the time, but I think your point is well taken. And um, everybody should be looking at it and saying, if I'm not good at this, it's a defense mechanism. I lost to something that isn't as important as what I do well. Right, Nick? That's right. And I think uh, it is true. I think back in that day when you first started covering MMA, I think a lot of the narrative was, you know, these wrestlers are kind of hitting the scene and they're making a splash. And laying on me. They're, they're no, they'd say they're me. laying, they're laying prey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, laying prey. And you don't really hear laying prey too often now. I don't think a lot of people really do. And there's not really a whole lot of fighters that really lay and prey on people anymore. You know, they not after I, Khabib. Not after, well, Khabib's not, he's not just laying on you. Yeah, he's, spinning, yeah. You know, he's, he's submitting you. He's hitting you in the face. Like mm-hmm. he's smashing you. So, I mean, there's not a whole lot of lay and prey guys anymore in this day and age. I and mean, back in, you know, whatever, 10 years ago. Yeah. You, you had those kind of guys that would lay and prey on you or whatever, like a Jake O'Brien or somebody like that. If you're familiar. Uh, I, for me, I remember Jake O'Brien. I, yeah. For me, it's what the what's gonna win, and if laying and praying gets you points, how is that different from getting points standing up in mixed martial arts? Yeah, I mean, you're well, still people accuse G- GSP of doing that. Yeah, yeah, it's Dan Hardy. I look, that, and, you know. I look at that as being a smart fighter, being a smart, smart athlete. If you want, if you want a stand-up match, there's something called boxing and kickboxing that you can watch and you they'll never go to the ground. So you could do that. If it's it's MMA, man, it's like whatever is going to work, whatever is going to work against that opponent and whatever is going to win, whether it's a knockout submission or by points, the object is not you. The winner isn't the person who knocks. Isn't always the person who knocks someone out or gets a sub. You can also win by points. Wait, but, Will, let me just say something to Nick. Tell me that to this day, even retired, that Bisping doesn't retain a tinge of that, that if it's a real fight, you're standing and trading. Tell me Bisping doesn't still feel that way today. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. If you listen to his podcast, you know that. a real fight. Yeah, he's he's definitely like uh, in the Dana White cut of what he wants to see from fighters. I yeah. think it's his culture too, you know. I think England and Europe have, have more of the salt, you know. They have, they, they, I don't know. They have more of that mindset of like fisticuffs and a clockwork like, orange man. He's Alex. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing know. is, you could be tough, but imagine if you're super tough and you're smart at the same time. <laughs> like George. Yeah. Like George. George then, is like you. You have to listen to him interview. Bis, Bisping interviewed George because you're an intellectual, Will. You have a doctorate. Oh, I actually I actually listened to it after you mentioned is it. Is he last not week. a genius? Who, George, George is a genius. Yeah. He's a genius. He, he's he's really good. And one one thing to say for that, and this is a little bit of background in terms of how we do human movement in the States compared to elsewhere, is I think him being Canadian and growing up in a Canadian system has been a really significant advantage for him. Because if you just take the things like, if we just take like physical education in the United States, if people think of physical education in the United States, they usually, it's the first thing that gets cut in school, right? It's the first thing 
if you don't have enough teachers, you cut out the physical education teacher and have the math teacher teach physical education. Yep. In other countries, it's not like that. And the reason why we are the way we are in the United States, we have, we're obese, we're unhealthy. Um, our, our knowledge of movement science is extremely poor on average. It's an advantage for him because of the, of how he developed in the, in the, the system that he was in, right? I'll loosely say system. Um, and you look at his training, how he does his training, it's very diverse, his training. Um, so I think that's an, that's an advantage. And I don't, I don't look at it as GS, GSP is this genius, right? When we t- talk about genius as being super intellectual, I look at it as, and he is, a, I'm not gonna say he's not a smart guy, but I'm gonna attribute that stuff to more. It's the system of movement that he was brought, it, brought up in because Canada does human movement from when you're born to when you're adult systematically much better than we do in the United States. So it's in their school? What do you mean? Like, is there, is it part of so, their? Yeah. So for example, um, I'll give you different levels of examples, right? And so like their physical education systems, right, are going to be much different, but I have more experience at the university system. So I'm in the sciences of human movement. And when I go and get research grants, my research grant, the likelihood of me getting research grant in human movement is usually going to be linked to disease and it's going to be really hard to get, right? So you have to look at it. That's very important because the research dollars are being put into disease rather than what? Than human movement. Or rather than, okay, let's not have the disease, right? We're studying the disease. Oh, after, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's like after the fact. There, it's much easier for faculty members or scientists in human movement to get research dollars. In the US, we go, oh, if you're a Canadian scientist, human movement scientist, and you're in a Canadian university, and you don't have federal funding, then you probably are a really bad researcher because there's so much federal funding available in Canada for human movement research. Whereas here, it's far less. And the human movement research is usually, it needs to be associated with some type of disease, but there they're funding all sorts of things. So at the national level, in terms of funding research, it's much more readily available there than it is here, where it's usually linked to disease. We might have higher dollars or whatever it may be, but nonetheless, they're researching more of a breadth of human movement. And so systematically, they're set up a lot better than we are. And you can see that it's readily apparent. They're more preventative in nature. Yeah. If you think it's BS, just look at our, just look at our quote unquote health ratings, right. Or, or disease ratings or disease numbers compared to them. Like it's no, it's, it's, it's not even no comparison per capita. It's a, like a lot of the things that when I listen to him, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what I see in international athletes. That's what I see right in overseas athletes is they're put into a system that's much better run from birth to adult um whether it be government whether it be private what whatever it may be they're just in a much better system and you see that in those conversations is that's what i'm saying right you'll see that in those conversations and that comes out Um, and i think that's a baseline he's working off of whereas here oh my gosh what's interesting is that he's he's thought about everything. I mean, you heard him talk about his gymnastics and his track and field. 
Like, you don't hear other fighters going, oh, yeah, I'm training gymnastics or training track and field. You well, know, like, he he's so thoughtful about what he does. Well, so that's one of the things, you know, in graduate school, I was really fortunate to be um, to meet uh, a good friend and colleague of mine who I went to graduate school with, but he was a track and field coach. Mm-hmm. In track and field, if you think about periodization of speed and strength, the best it comes from track and field. Everybody is t- like football strength coaches, baseball strength coaches, whatever strength coach you can imagine, they're taking stuff from track and field with how they periodize, how they strength train, etc. And in a really good developmental track and field program, there is gymnastics, right? So if you're developing an athlete, and I, this is one of the things that, you know, the strength is very popular in, in a variety of sports. And in UFC, it's also popular. We'll just stick to UFC or MMA because that's what we do in this podcast. And if you just look at MMA, I, I just scratch my head because I don't know what the hell they're doing. <laughs> like I can't see the I can't see the logical at least from what I from the views that I get I don't see any logical progressions based off like really good systems of development it's almost it, it has almost become like I'm just gonna take a little bit of this I'm gonna take a little bit of that right you have all these different bricks but you don't know how to put the house together but you have bricks and I just see so much, so much more room for improvement. So I look at what GSP is doing. If he's trained with a straight coach in Canada, he's probably has a really, really good background in periodization that comes from track and field. But if you look at an MMA fighter here, probably not. <laughs> I'm yeah. going to say the odds are very, very unlikely. And the funny thing is that coaches in track and field typically do the strength programs here. A football coach has a strength coach. A baseball coach has a strength coach. A fighter has a strength coach. But in track and field, the coaches do the program. The strength coach, yeah. <laughs> right? The coaches do the strength program because they're, the knowledge level in terms of the training and education is so much greater that they can not only do their sport, but they can also do right the physical development side of it. Well, I mean, if you look at some of the most prolific players – in NFL history going back to the 80s, you know, track and field. Michael Carter, you know, I think was like a shot putter and was an all-pro nose tackle for the 49ers. I think that's what he was. Um, you had Willie Galt. You had, even now, Tyreek Hill, Bo Jackson. I mean, there's many, many different uh, track athletes that have just been huge in uh, in football, you know, yeah. that, that, that were grounded in track and field. You hear Marcellus Wiley. He tells you my best, you know, Marcellus Wiley was, in, was a multiple-time Pro Bowler. He says my best sport wasn't football. It was track, track and yeah. field. So Yeah, you know who would be great to have on who has a track background, who is a strength coach, is, uh, is Big Chad from Gracie Baja. Chad was a collegiate. He might have he came in. Oh, uh, that after, guy. Yeah. He might have came in a little bit after you left, or maybe you guys Chad. have just like saw each other a little bit recent, uh, recently. Oh, I know. He's really fit. He he's got a yeah, he, no, like, really fit guy. I know Chad. Yeah. No, no, no. He's no, 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 no. Not, not the black belt Chad. Not the one who's been at Grace Baja. But he's oh. like, oh, he came into Gracie Baja training. He was over 300 pounds. I think. Mm-hmm. 
he used to be a shot uh, thrower for uh, Cal Berkeley. Okay. Now he runs Juggernaut Training Systems. Oh, but man. Oh, you okay. Can, like, like he, like he has a track background. So I think I know you're talking about. He, yeah. So like the the training paradigms in in philosophies that he, that 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 he does are very or I'm very familiar with them because I know where they're I know where they're coming from. So you have someone like that. Someone like that's going to make a difference rather than someone who, you know, got their CSCS, which is the strength. He like trains other uh, jiu-jitsu guys. Yeah, right? he and trained he the train Homolo, like he trained Otavio. Yeah, yeah, I know who that um, is. Right, he's training Philippe, all those big Gracie Baja he's, guys. He's got his own YouTube channel with Juggernaut yeah. training. And he's everything. he's got a he's like he's someone that. that that has that track and field background. That okay, right? That that knows the nuances of of real periodization in terms of strength and skill development. He'd be good to have on because we talk get that about brother it. on, man. Yeah. Get that brother. He'd be good to have on, and he can talk. He could talk more about those things, but. I always like that's the peak behind the curtain for me. Like I've been, that's what I do is this field of human movement. I specialize in motor learning control, but I've had some exposure to the top people in the field, scientifically and practically. And I kind of look at, I kind of look at different sports and what they're doing. Um, and that's the heart, right? The track and field development and how they're periodizing is the heart of where that stuff comes from. And a lot of stuff that comes from, comes from, you know, the, um, well, some Russian Eastern European training philosophies that they kind of did bad things to their athletes, but it was kind of good for the body of the body of knowledge that we have now. But I just kind of look at that stuff and say, that explains why GSP speaks the way that he does and trains the way he does. He can't, he grew up in a much better system for human movement than we have in the United States. That 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 does explain uh, that does explain something about why he seems so different than a lot of guys and um, and uh, I just find him to be when he speaks he has a philosophy on things he's not simply training and fighting I think that's what you're saying I'm saying a simplified version you're saying like the graduate level version and Nick's not saying anything Nick do you love GSP? I love GSP. Does man, that brother he was always, blow you away? Oh, he was always something special, you know. And yeah. and I think when people say like, "Who's your favorite fighter?" and like, I tend to a lot of people tend to gravitate towards who's currently doing well, right? And then when those fighters start to decline, they don't become. There's they're not, they 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 don't they don't stay as you know the fans' favorite fighter anymore because then another fighter takes that guy or her place, and then you 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 kind of move on. And you know, I I kind of have that I, I tend to fall into that pitfall too it's like oh i love this guy and then he starts to decline and then he starts losing and then and then you go to somebody else right but for gsp it's like man, he never did I, that <laughs> never did that well you know he never had a decline but yeah. when he left and then years later you know he's he, and you hear see him in interviews you're like man this guy he's still one of the great like i still view him view him as one of my favorite fires you know no doubt even past him not competing which says a lot because most well, of these guys yeah, you kind of forget about and when you think about people you would want to go have a beer and have a conversation with and you can kind of understand why he and john donaher connected so well um i could sit and have a conversation with gsp for an hour or two and just be like engrossed whereas 
you know, uh, the Sean O'Malley's of the world and the, uh, what's the other knucklehead this week? Uh, oh, I don't know. Ch- is his name Chase? I don't even remember what his name is. The Basically, uh, Casey Kenny, the uh, one that Oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, that, yeah. The derogatory, yeah. over-sexualized comments about Megan... Uh, Megan, uh, Megan Anderson. Megan Anderson. So yeah. very, very sad. But uh, let's talk about what's going on in the future on life, MMA, and the NBA. Next week after our super guest, I will get into some NBA because I don't want to keep her for the whole hour unless she has that kind of time. So we'll see what she's got. But let me just first say that uh, my friend Justin presented this to me. We had Carissa on uh, a uh, high school wrestling phenom this young lady parked next to us at the racetrack and blew everybody away on the racetrack regardless of age or what bike they were on uh kayla yakov and her goal is to become the first female moto gp rider in the world and people marvel when they see this young small girl handle a motorcycle and be able to do what she does. So I'm going to encourage you guys to go to that. Click on that Facebook post. Look at some photos of Kayla on her motorcycle. And then when we have her on. Hopefully Will will be able to analyze what it is motor control wise. That makes this girl able to basically. You know some of the, the, the her times are like track records. She's an amazing ride. I mean she gave me some advice <laughs> on what to do when I was out at the track. I was like, hey, Kayla, I'm, I'm having a little trouble in this turn. Can you help me out? Um, and she did. So um, so I'd like to have her on in the future, Kayla Yakov. Um, I've reached out to her. I got a little bit more work to do on that, um, but I will go through the necessary steps. Uh, but what do you think? You guys want to uh, have a girl on who could be the first female MotoGP rider? For sure. That sounds awesome. Willoughby? I'm in if you guys are in. I think I think it'd be interesting to talk to her. Um very you know I'll get you know you know, in a sport where there are adults out on the track, but she's racing against, you know, other kids that are kind of phenoms like her, but um uh from what I hear from people who know more than I am, because I'm an intermediate level rider at best and that's kind of pushing uh the notion of an intermediate track rider and she rides with the experts and 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 just blows dudes away so uh and she doesn't have the most horsepower in her bike i can tell you that for sure so anyway um let's talk about next week (sighs) so the entire time of our podcast I've been trying to get the what we're up to 25 episodes now or whatever it is. I've been trying to get this young lady to come on uh, who just did a podcast about a book that Will read about Tiger Woods written by Armin Katan, formerly of HBO Real Sports and every other network out there from ABC and ESPN, etc. Armin is uh, um, a brilliant sports journalist and uh, Kate Casey had him on her show, Reality Life with Kate Casey, which really doesn't tell the whole story about what she does. Because all she has to do is find a topic interesting, and boom, she's going to have one of the principals. She had the the director of that that uh, documentary movie on one week, and the next week she had Armin Katayan on. 
who wrote the book that the movie was based on. So thank God you guys are going to have to monitor my blood pressure. Kate Casey is going to come on with us next week and I'm going to try to be calm. I'm going to have incense burning, candles, crystals, everything. You're going to look like Nick when we had Eugene Robinson. Yeah, I will. It just looked like Nick's was frozen. Like, <laughs> I'm going to be like, and here is Kate Casey. <laughs> and it'll be the worst show ever just because it'll be me yeah. and Nick asking questions. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Kate, Kate. Not my strong suit. Kate. <laughs> 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 so 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 um so this week we'll be working to um i really want to kind of find out about her uh i you know we'll dive into uh reality television a little bit she um this will probably strike home with will a little bit she's basically saying calling that they should replace the entire uh cast of real housewives of orange county and come back with uh, a new cast every two years. So by the time, you know, the fame starts, because people are totally faking it up. You had Kelly Dodd, you know, made the racist comments on there. She had a hat on that said, Drunk Lives Matter. She made another um, derogatory uh, reference towards people of color. The Real Housewives of Atlanta, Portia Williams, uh, chimed in on that. Uh, Andy asked her about it. And then she went on to say she's black. So, I mean, she's not black, but. Um, she's not but, Mike Perry? Yes, yeah. It's like a Mike Perry situation. Thank you. <laughs> We've come back to MMA. So, oh, Kelly Dodd, there's a couple of problematic people on there. You know, like, there's another person on there. It's another QAnon type. And so, Kate thinks that they should just. The fame really gets to him. Now you're, like, playing for the cameras. It's like overproduced it becomes really fake so um so perhaps i'd like to ask her about where reality television is going um i did try to watch uh because mandy convinced me to try to watch real housewives of salt lake city i made it through about five minutes of the opening episode and i just couldn't go anymore because it seems so that there was a family eating breakfast together it was coach shaw because one of the uh, principals on Real Housewives of Salt Lake City is Jen Shaw's husband. Uh, I for, forgive me, I don't remember his la his first name, but he's a coach at Utah State, uh, an assistant coach. And um, I just felt watching them at breakfast like this is totally fake. Like this breakfast isn't really happening. It was already <laughs> decided what they were going to talk about, what topics they were going to talk about. I'm like, I'm out. It's reality show. It's all fake. It's reality TV. It's all fake. Come this on, is, man. This, Below deck, this, man. This Come on, Nick. Much, Below deck. Much, Below deck's all right. Below this is how much right. I support you guys. <laughs> I hate with a passion reality TV. Because you love us, Will. I dig it. All right. This is how Will much does I love like you top guys. Chef. I don't want to. This is how much I have you guys' back in this podcast. I appreciate um, that. Don't think you're not. <laughs> don't think for a second that you're not appreciated, Doctor. With Wu. a pack, I think it. I actually think it makes the world a worse place. That's how, <laughs> like, the world would be better if we didn't have it. Well, 
I, you know, I thought that you were very gentlemanly with Mandy, and, but I think we can pose some of those questions to Kate in, in it, in a nice way. You know what I mean? Because right. we don't want to make her trying to defend reality television because that's not her role. To def- you know what I, I mean? That's not. I, I, I look at it as I'm a non-viewer of it. How can she explain the value of it to a non-viewer? You're an agnostic. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's good. That's good. So, all right. So you've got, She's there's question number one. Them. Yeah. <laughs> no. So, I mean, I, I, it, I would, it, I would, I would rather watch two jujitsu guys never change a position for a 10 minute match. The script breaks over and looking over. Looking for <laughs> one advantage. Looking for to win one advantage. Do, double guard pull. That's like the pole. Meow Brothers, every Meow Brothers match. Yeah. For one advantage, <laughs> then watch reality TV show. All right. So, you know what, though? I, I, I don't think we can paint with that broader brush because I don't think all reality TV is created equal. I think that um, the challenge is really interesting. You have Olympic. Do you know you have Olympic athletes on the challenge now, Will? Well, on MTV is the challenge. I will. I will give you that because I love watching Top Chef more than any cooking show. Wait a minute, but did you just hear what I said about the challenge? Olympic athletes on there, competing on MTV's The Challenge. I think that that's serious, is, man. I think that's, that's like, serious, uh, but I'm going to give you my take on it. It shows you how poorly funded and poor how much and how low the earning potential is in those post Olympic careers go, in, in if they have to go on those shows. Yeah. That's why Ronda but, Rousey had to punch people in the face to make correct. it. That's why Ronda Rousey had to. I, I don't disagree with you, but having, I, I don't disagree with you, Will, but having said that, I think you should watch an episode and see the feats, the physical <laughs> difficulty of that show. I, I watch. Okay. And I watch hometown. Those are reality, so I, I'm giving. I'm giving a little bit there. Deeper. You're giving. giving. God bless you. All right. right? I'm All right. I'm, yeah. All right. I gotta get. I, I gotta get it back to Dr. Dre and get us out of here. Uh. <laughs> oh, it's Funkarama at that. Come on, man. It's Funkarama. Okay. Funkarama. All right. We're gonna let Kevin. Uh, Sorry, Kevin McLeod take us out. I'm just busting your balls, DJ. I know. All right, yeah, just give me a second to get Kevin up on here. Uh, talk amongst yourselves. I, I'm still trying to figure out. DJ has a rash guard on top of a rash guard. I, w- I, was, doing, I was working out before we went to get food. So that like was... chafing on chafing? No, I, yeah, I always wear. I mean, you want to be in a yoga class with your shirt falling down? Come on, man. He's, he's, uh, he's just like being super safe because if – the inner one doesn't prevent chafing. The outer rash guard will prevent yes. the chafing. The backup. Yeah, hey, you know, we don't need you guys to, like, evaluate my <laughs> wardrobe, man. Like, step off, dude. <laughs> Whatever. That was scripted. I had, I had messaged Nick. Yes. We were going to talk about we're like at guards. What time we at here? At 821, we're going to throw that out. <laughs> hey man, Bushesha. He fight he signed with uh one, right? LFC, right? Yeah. 
I'm super curious to see he's how fine. that. He's supposed to be fighting some like just gigantic. Like... Does every Brazilian have oh, to? Oh yeah. Does every Brazilian have to follow the Chrome Gracie model and go sign with one, and then Gary Tonin, you know, and now Bouchesha and Chrome? Do you think Gary Tonin could be successful in the UFC? Sure, absolutely, but he has to want to do it or think that he's ready for it, whatever. Sure, absolutely. I think, he's, I think he has the game to do it. Oh, yeah. And he's got great, you know, back takes and guillotines. And, I mean, you saw what he, you saw what he could do against Usamar Paul Harris. What weight division is he in? He's like a 35er, I think. No, I think he's bigger than. I think he's a 45er or 55. Yeah, he's either a 40. Yeah, he might be a 45er. Yeah. Because yeah. remember, so he fought uh, Javier Vasquez. That's feather. Feather yeah. or or lightweight. So yeah. He'd be in with Max Holloway, Brian Ortega, Zabi, Yair. Yeah. I tell you what, though, man, his jiu-jitsu is better than any of those guys, man. You know, he's he's dynamic, man. He's that really would be good. Interesting to see. Yeah. So, all right. We got to get out of here next week. Kate Casey on life, MMA, and the NBA. We're going to have more UFO talk coming up. We're going to try to get Kayla Yakov, but Kate Casey, the legend, the amazing Kate Casey will be on with us next week. So for Dr. Will Wu, for Nick Cazono, it's DJ San Marco saying peace out, one love, and we'll see you down the road. All right, guys.